1: Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Happy New Year to everyone. We're going to get 2021 off to a good start with our first returning guest, Sherry Singer, president of Singer Communications. Sherry first joined us for two episodes last year to talk about communications and trade associations and professional societies. Today, we're going to look back on 2020 and discuss generally what communicators learned about their craft, and specifically what trade associations and professional societies learned about their organizations. As Sherry and I have known each other for a long time, and we jumped right in before I had a chance to hit the record button, so we're going to join our conversation already in progress. Our topic today was born out of Sherry's frustration that many of the 2020 retrospectives she's read. Seem to cover lessons learned that are really evergreen, things like the importance of technology and knowing your stakeholders, which may have been somewhat emphasized as we worked through the challenges that COVID-19 threw our way, but which are pretty much always true for professional communicators. She wanted to talk about lessons learned that are truly unique to 2020. We also touch on some aspects of our personal lives and what we've learned that can make us happier and healthier in the new year and years to come. Right before I hit record, Sherry was describing what she hoped to accomplish during our podcast, and it sparked an analogy from my days as a rabid despiser of all things related to DC traffic. That's where you'll join us today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. What you're describing in terms of everybody sort of having the same list that really is a an evergreen list and could apply to almost any year many years ago i was be listening to the traffic in the morning and it really started to drive me crazy because the traffic report in the morning was always the same you know the the backups were always in the same places uh, coming into dc you know i-270 from father hurley boulevard to this you know from from the occoquan to the you know to the potomac uh, coming up 95, 66 was always nutly to the beltway. I mean, it was always the same things. And now I live very close to work. I was only four and a half miles from my office as the crow flies, but it still often took me 45 minutes to get into the office. Right. And if there was a problem on Connecticut Avenue heading into the into the city, you know, that really could, it, there were times and I just turned around and went home and waited for the for things to dissipate. And my opinion was the traffic report should never talk about 95 from Occoquan to the, the river or 66 from Nutley to the Beltway, you know, those are going to be backed up. What's the point in sharing right. that information? But give me some information that may actually be relevant to me. That's a really an unusual thing that's going on. That's going to right. change, you know, for this day, I need to know not the stuff I know is always true. So anyway, that seems to be something of an analogy for what you're discussing. So let me, let me do our intro here. So before we rush okay. into what we did last time, yeah, <laughs> and I'll start by saying welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. You're our first returning. Uh, oh, I'm so honored. <laughs> at, well, I'm honored to have you. When we last spoke uh, in November, we just had so much material. I wound up turning it into essentially two and a half episodes of, of the podcast. And there were other things we talked about both before that uh, appearance and then afterwards that we didn't get a chance to cover. So I'm glad you've come back. So we can focus really on some of the things from, from your point of view that we've learned, association professionals have learned about themselves in this uh, unprecedented and crazy year. And then also some of the things to think about as we turn the corner and head into 2021 with, I think, a lot of optimism with the vaccine company and fingers crossed that that'll get distributed. And maybe by the end of 2021, at least from a from a public health point of view, we'll be getting back to normal. So um, so thank you, thank you for coming back.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: I know you you have shared with me uh, some four words that you wanted to sort of uh, base these uh, this uh, conversation around. So uh, let, or let's just jump into it. Or maybe did you want to start with the self care? Or well,
2: I, I I wanted to repeat what you and I talked about offline, which is I'm going to try to have this conversation without saying unprecedented pivot or dumpster fire year. Um, I'm also going to try to do without the one-liners that we all know, I know you and, and I, Leonard, just talked about this and, you know, these things like know your clients or your members, you know, leverage technology, use data and statistics to guide your activities. Provide value added for your members. Use content in various ways, repurpose the content. Virtual is here to stay. Your clients or members are your community, engage them. If we didn't know those before 2020, then we certainly know them now and there's really not a lot else we can say about them. So I thought it was more important to talk about the things that we may have learned kind of from the inside Um, that definitely reflect on how we moved through 2021 and how we might move through 20, I'm sorry, how we move through 2020 and how we might then move through 2021. So um, one thing that I thought of that really was on a lot of the lists that I looked at, but I think it's worth mentioning here again, is self-care because I find that I'm usually pretty good about self-care, but In 2020, in March, my nail and hair salon were closed. My favorite upscale restaurants not open for dining inside. So if I bring it home, it's not the same experience. It doesn't feel like self-care. It feels like carry out. Um, when my massage therapist retired in March. So I couldn't get a massage. I can't visit the beach because no one on the beach, at least this summer on the beach I was visiting, was wearing a mask, even though it was mandated. Um, I couldn't take Pilates. I can't walk with my neighborhood walk group. So how am I going to practice self-care if I can't do any of those things? 2020 was also supposed to be a year of me personally giving back. And from January to March... I was in a grief uh, volunteer training class. Mm-hmm. And then the center closed two days after I graduated from the course. So again, it's like I'm trying to do all this self-care and you know, focus on how I can give back, and I wasn't able to do any of it. So self-care for me wound up taking on a really, really different meaning. Um, I'm doing things for myself, by myself. And I have to say, I'm thoroughly enjoying it and one of my uh, association clients said to me when we were talking about Thanksgiving on a call, oh, it's nice that you're able to look at it from a more positive perspective, but I swear this Thanksgiving alone, I loved it. I cooked for three days and I made all the items that I like to eat. I ate at seven o'clock at night, not at 3 p.m., which always left me starving at nine or 10 o'clock at night. I watched a movie I wanted to watch, I didn't have to clean my house or stress out the company was not gonna like the food I made. I didn't have to travel to help my dad and his completely nutty wife, who freaked out about every last detail, Ask me about the time she threw a chair at my dad's head on Thanksgiving day because her cousin was bringing an extra person to the 30 people that were already attending. But that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so today self-care means to me, turning more inward and allowing myself the time and the space to think and to feel and to be creative and to relax. What a concept. So um, that's all I have to say about self-care. Are you finding that self-care is different for you, Leonard, in this day and age?
1: You know, as you were talking, I I, I don't usually think in those terms, uh, but to me, um, self-care hasn't really changed. and and. If anything, uh, this year has made self-care easier for me. And I say that because my self-care has always been to sort of go off, go off on my own and engage in, you know, sort of quiet activities by myself. So I, I love to read. Uh, I love to sit in front of, you know, the TV and binge watch a, a show like 30 Rock that I've already binge watched many times before, but still love, love it every time. Uh, I like to run and exercise, so a lot of the things that I do really are are things that I've always done on my own, and if anything, this year has taken some of the pressure off of feeling like I need to be doing more um, extroverted things, <laughs> so um, it, it's been a bit of a blessing. It's funny, my brother is sort of the same way. Um, from our point of view, the fact that we've been told to stay in our homes and not see anyone and not be social has really almost made life a little bit easier, uh, so I guess uh, yeah I'm lucky in the sense that my self-care regimen has not really changed and if anything has um, been enhanced a bit because of what we've been experiencing. And I could, I certainly understand uh, how other people are, are struggling to figure it out. My uh, girlfriend is not like that. She's a very social, has a wide circle of friends, very involved in Zumba and a dance group and a lot of things that she has not been able to do. Although um, we have been loosening our quarantine bounds some uh, over the last several months and, and been a little more social uh, lately. But yeah, just for example, we this the dance group she belongs to does a gift exchange every Christmas. We had it in our house last year, and of course this year we have to do it over Zoom. So um, it's nice to have the technology to be able to make that work, but it's obviously not the same uh, when you can't be in a room with people and uh, together that way. So.
2: So you're lucky because you sound like you're more introverted than I am. I'm more like your girlfriend. I'm definitely an extrovert and I get my energy from other people. So for me, just having the space and the time to think and reflect and be a little more creative and be introspective, and I usually do that anyway, but I've just had more permission to do it in this year. And I think you're saying the same thing that you don't, you know, when you're running, you don't feel like, oh, I should be home doing this work or whatever, you know, you feel like it's something that you need to do. And I think a lot of, I don't think we're the only two people who feel like that. I wanted to talk about the first word. And some of these words are kind of positive and some of them may not be quite as positive as others, but the first one is pretty positive. Um, I think that we all know now just how resilient we really are. We were ready to embrace the technology that we had to embrace. Um, And we know that because since 2007, there's 500 times more data available to us on a daily basis. There's a hundred times more people on Facebook than in 2007. There are 25 times more connected devices. There are 30 times more broadband connections. And this is all in 2020 before COVID and since 2007. So like it or not, we had the technology to be able to move into this virtual world. We just weren't in, in a position that forced us to do that until covid. So that's kind of a good thing and I think those of us who were even sort of tech averse, you know, I feel like it's it's the reoccurrence for me of like math anxiety, like tech anxiety, even I learned how to use zoom, got on microsoft teams, you know, I know how to use all the video conference software now and not intimidated by all of it. And that really does make us pretty resilient we've given up a lot of our lives and we've embraced change for the most part. I know that a lot of us now are really experiencing the fatigue of being cooped up or locked in, you know, and and that's, you just mentioned it, you know, you've loosed in your, your um, boundaries a little bit um, at a time where I have to say CDC is telling us to tighten them up. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of other things going on and you never really know what somebody else is going through. So people might be worried about their elderly parents or their college age kids on campus, or a friend who's by themselves. Um, And then we have the whole piece of people that are alone in hospitals or long-term care facilities, and they're not allowed to see their families. And I'm not talking about people who have COVID. I'm just talking about regular, you know, you break your leg and you have to be in the hospital overnight or whatever, you know, or your your loved one is in a long-term term care facility and you're worried about them getting COVID, et cetera. All of this is also like plugging into not sleeping, eating more, not exercising as much. I give a lot of credit to parents who have young children and are homeschooling. I mean, bravo to you and of course to all of the healthcare workers who are on the front lines at this pandemic. And not only the healthcare workers, but the people that are delivering the packages to our doors every day, the people that are you know, ringing you up at the grocery store or at Target or at uh, Best Buy. I mean, I think they're all doing their part to make it easier for us. And all of us are living a different life now today than we were eight or nine, 10 months ago. And it just shows the resilience that we have in being able to um, change direction from the lives that we were so accustomed to and that we took so much for granted. Are you? Do you have any specific examples of resilience, Leonard, that you can share with the podcast listeners?
1: Yeah, I want to focus really on the younger generation and like you. Uh, You know, my heart goes out to and my admiration is with uh, parents who are having to figure out a way to uh, either homeschool their children or even oversee their education virtually. How difficult that is. I was not working the first part of this year when my uh, I call my three young stepchildren were uh, in school. And it was a struggle for me uh, to help them when I was home and able to be there. Uh, Now this fall, things are a little bit better just because Montgomery County here in Maryland has gotten their act together. And, uh, you know, God bless them for figuring out a way to make this all work, even in the face of the pandemic. So I know how difficult that is. But when I look at it from their point of view, and then also from my own children's point of view, my kids are older. They're millennials. My son was born in 95 and my daughter in 99. And so when I think about the changes that they've had to make and the the things that they've had to work through, uh, and just generally what millennials have had to endure over the short course of their relatively short lifetimes, not that they're old enough to remember nine eleven and everything that went on there, but my son certainly is old enough to remember the financial, the great recession um, in 2008, 2009, and then now this, and and yeah, my son moved back to D.C. right before this whole thing broke out. He had gotten a pretty good job and was looking to go back to school part time. And uh, his job was in the catering business. And of course, it just went away overnight when this thing descended upon us. And so now he's back in school full time um, at Maryland and finishing up getting his bachelor's degree. So yeah, and just the way the the younger people that in my life anyway, have have adjusted to this new normal and how resilient they've proven to be uh, is very impressive.
2: Yep, I think that's true. That, the next one I want to talk about is a little bit more on the less positive side. And it's the word that comes to my mind, intolerant. And I don't know about you, Leonard, but I found myself yelling at my TV through these, you know, political and other you know interviews, expert interviews, My heart broke to see, you know, black and brown Americans, um, you know, uh, arrested for protesting, shot for largely no reason. I was embarrassed that foreign officials literally were turning their back on the leaders of our country and laughing. Um, I'm really angry at those who say, still believe that COVID is a hoax. I read something recently on Facebook where a guy was actually dying in a hospital, telling his nurse it wasn't COVID and he was going to be fine. Um, In my personal experience, I've been really surprised in my neighborhood, which is known as a progressive community, um, that I would say about 50% of my neighbors don't wear masks. Mm -hmm. And just this week, the Commonwealth of Virginia put into effect is, I think a lot of states are, you know, upping the ante on the uh, on the mandates. And like many other states, we put into effect that if you cannot social distance outside, you need to be wearing a mask. And no one in my neighborhood is still wearing a mask. I mean, there's maybe maybe half, and I think that's being generous. Um, and, and in 50% of those in stores, I've been, shopping for gifts a few times, they're wearing them, but they're wearing them pulled down. So they're not covering their noses or even their mouths in some case. So I'm just really, really surprised. Um, and I do walk like you run Leonard. I walk on the W and OG bike path and it's about, I would say six or eight feet wide. So if you're walking with somebody else and somebody goes to pass you, you know, there's a midline you're not six feet from that person. So, um, and it's also not possible to be six feet away if you're passing someone on a sidewalk, but still people aren't wearing masks. And I posted on Nextdoor the guidelines this week, and you would be shocked um, that how much backlash I got. In fact, one person reported me, even though I linked it to the Arlington County site where the, um, the guidelines were posted, um, they reported me for posting misinformation and for being a fraud. So I'm really like, what is happening here? (laughs) My intolerance is high because I don't want people to die because someone was infected and they wouldn't wear a mask um, indoors or outdoors. And my intolerance is high because 400 years, the idea that people are still being judged on the color of their skin or the religion they observe, it's crazy to me. But as intolerant and angry as I am, I'm not gonna be violent or do anything to harm people. But I realize, like not everyone feels that way. Um, I just heard a report this morning on WTOP, the all new stage news station in DC that yet another public official has been threatened by a fringe group. And you know, it scares me intolerance and difference of opinion and all of that seems to be part of the American fabric. But when it moves into violence or harming someone else because of their beliefs, I'm just in shock. I mean, how do you feel about that, Leonard?
1: Well, there's several things. I, I, I guess in, in my neighborhood, at least, I, I have to say that it's very rare to see someone who's not wearing a mask uh, in the stores around here, the grocery stores and things. So from that point of view, I think people are being uh, much more tolerant, much more thoughtful about um, their neighbors and their well-being, but I definitely agree in terms of the broader picture and what the country has been going through. In my opinion, over the last four years, uh, has just been done everything to ratchet up intolerance. We have a president who's—that's one of the levers he likes to pull um, in order to uh, inflame his base and you know stay in power. Uh, and it—it it really is very sad. There's been so much going on this year, of course, with COVID being at the top of the list, and then the you know the economic devastation that has come along with it. But then you know, right not, right below that is you know Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of those um, sort of social upheavals that probably were would have come you know, without these other um, massive dislocations occurring that haven't gotten a whole lot of attention just because there's there's so much else going on. But to me. There, what I'm hopeful for, and I know I'm, I'm peeking ahead at one of the other words we're going to discuss, but is not only that with President-elect Biden coming into office and the way he has been you know, speaking to the country and just generally positioning himself, I think is exactly the right tonic for what we're experiencing now. And even if you know there are still going to be millions of people who will never accept him as a legitimate president, at the very least, he unlike his you know soon-to-be predecessor. Uh, He is everything he's doing is aimed at at rationing down the intolerance, which I think is exactly what we need. But to me, everything that's happening in the social front, in terms of that, I'm hoping will lead to better things in the years to come. I know just personally, and now I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here, but you know, I always considered myself to be pretty woke, as they say. You know, I don't think of myself as being in any way racist or judge people. In any way other than by the content of their character, but I really I realized when those uh, you know, protests erupted and things really got to be uh, you know, pretty dangerous there that you know I really didn't understand what a lot of people are going through you know, in this country. I and and one uh, concrete example of that is I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I'm a sports fan, a fan of all the Cleveland-based sports teams. I never. I wasn't vehemently against it, but I also did not support changing the teams, the, the baseball team's name, the Cleveland Indians, because I just didn't think that that should be offensive. Or if it was offensive to some people, well, you know, that's okay. I, I have a different opinion about the Washington Redskins. To me, that was obviously offensive. But but that changed my whole mind and my mind about it. And I realized, you know what, it, we've got to change a lot of things um, in this country. And so I, my, my eyes were opened, and I hope a lot of other people – we're moved in the right direction or we're continuing to move in the right direction uh, when it comes to that kind of uh, thing, so.
2: Yeah, I took a deep dive into trying to understand more about it. So I've read um, a couple of books. Um, There are also some association resources. one that I know that I've um, listened to is Text to Table with my friends Dante Shannon and Michelle Clements Clemens and Irv Washington and Sean Boynes and they bring in different people and they talk about what it's like to be a person of color in the association community. And that's been helpful to me. But even some of the other things that I've done on my own, like Busboys and Poets in, uh, they're in DC and Arlington. They've had a Zoom thing every Friday night talking about this. And I've I've tapped into a few of those and um, just a few other DEI kinds of things. Cause I, I you know, like you was raised in, kind of a suburban cradle of white privilege. And I don't even know what I don't know, you know, like um, on one of the things I was listening to, it was women, it was text to table, but it was women speaking black and brown women. And they were talking about hair issues, you know, and I was like, I never even thought of that. Like I, you know, I have my straight Caucasian hair and I blow it dry and that's the end of it, you know, but just being aware on that nuanced basis of what it's like to be, not me, you know, and to to walk in somebody else's shoes, I'm so appreciative of those in the community who have stepped up. And obviously I have a lot of personal friends that I've asked what I think are really dumb questions to, but I don't know. And they've offered to answer the questions. You know, they said, listen, if you have a question, reach out to me. And I've done that because I don't know necessarily what the right thing is or who I'm gonna offend. But before we go too far off of this, um, and I do wanna get to our last term of hope, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I mentioned earlier that I don't think a lot of us are really recognizing what we're going through. Um, Black Lives Matters is part of this as well. um, And it's grief. And when we talk about grief, because as I mentioned before, I had just been through training from January to March of 2020 to become a grief support volunteer. I'm not a counselor, I'm not, I don't have a licensed social work degree or anything, but I was trained over a three month period. And I think it's like 200 hours of training on how to talk to people who are, have lost a loved one. Um, And all of the lessons that I learned in those three months really came into play here um, because people have huge losses in the last 10 months that they might not even be focused on. Um, a loss of a loved one, the loss of communications between um, groups, you know, and and the ability to get together in person, worry and anxiety, the loss of a job, worrying about your income, whether you're losing your job or not. Uh, People have gone from being maybe middle class to actually worrying about food and shelter and clothing, you know, the basic needs. How am I going to get those covered? Um, School is another issue. And now it's coming out that, um, kids who are being homeschooled, a lot of them are not doing as well in their homeschool environment. So there's a loss of education or the ability to be in a classroom and learn. Um, I know a lot of the kids would say, I, I don't miss that. But I think underneath it all, there is that loss as well. Um, and what other human condition do we see people gaining or losing weight, having a loss of sleep or sleeping more, going through anxiety, boredom, but not much energy? depression, it's all tied to grief and bereavement. And we're grieving the way our lives were before in the US, March of 2020. And um, in most cases, it's not like a long-term depression, but it could be turned into a long-term depression. And in that case, I would encourage any of your podcast listeners to seek professional attention. However, if you feel that it's you know kind of solely tied to COVID, And the cascading issues that COVID is bringing about or that Black Lives Matter are bringing about, or as Leonard and I mentioned before, political intolerance might be bringing about. I mean, we're really undergoing three or four different um, crises at the same time, or even economic, you know, related to COVID, but still, you know, kind of a crisis on its own, Um, Mm -hmm it's probably grief because it's related to one of those four things. And as a society, we don't truly know what grief looks like because we never talk about it. You know, no one people's family members die, you know, like a grandparent dies or a a parent passes away or even the loss horribly of a child or something like that. And then the person who's grieving goes into grief for a month or so. And then they emerge from that and they go back to work and people say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. They say, oh, I'm fine. You know, how many times have we had that conversation? And they're not fine. You know, they're dealing with it inside. And so as someone who has actually been trained as a grief counselor, I can see how some of this just mimics you know, what's going on with people in grief. And some people have grief on top of all this. They've lost people to COVID or a lot of my friends just have parents who are, you know, older and they died, not from COVID, but they passed away from old age or whatever. And they weren't able to see them. You know, there's a lot of guilt around that. So all of that is to say that we are feeling a huge sense of loss. Um, And do you want to comment on that, Leonard? Because I think that really takes us into our next, hopeful kind of conversation.
1: Yeah, this reminds me of, of something that we discussed uh, the last time you were a guest on the podcast, and that is just the importance of empathy. And when you reach out to people, asking them how they're doing and really listening to to that answer. And and here I'm talking about not friends and family, but professional relationships, not and people you work with, at organ, if you work in an organization, uh, you know, you've got your firm, I work for a small firm, but obviously we have huge networks of people that we work with all the time, clients and friends and colleagues and uh, former clients and hopefully future clients. And I just think that's so important and recognizing, I think this is a part of it, that what they're going through, that even those of us have been lucky enough to uh, maintain employment, or in my case, even to find employment in, you know, this year, um, there are so many people who haven't, but even those who have, they're still going through a lot of, of personal things um, in terms of their personal lives and even their professional lives and the loss of a way of life and not going to the office anymore and having to figure out new technology and so forth. So I just think that I wanted to tie that back into our previous conversation. It's just important to recognize what people you're dealing with in a professional setting are going through and just being aware of it. And um, yeah, just making sure you check in with people from time to time and and see how they're doing, because that can be uh, very effective, I think, I'm not a trained counselor, but in helping others process their grief.
2: I think it's a, lot, a lifeline to do those check-ins. I try to do one or two of them a week. Um, as my friend, Carol Vernon, who is in the association community, and she's an executive coach, um, she taught me how to, by just example, how to say, how are you doing? So instead of how are you doing, she's, how are you doing? And there's a pause there and it's purposeful. And when you ask people that question, it has a very different effect than, How are you doing? You know, because that response is fine, right? You know the person. But when you ask, How are you doing? That really elicits, like I care about you and I want to know, and I, I think I mentioned this on the last one, but I have an ASAE colleague who I've worked with for probably the last 10 years. And I started every one of my emails to everyone, still do, you know, how are you doing? I hope this finds you well in this, you know, crazy time. Um, and one, she wrote me back and she said, well, I'm doing okay. Um, I don't know if you know, but my dad passed away in April um, from COVID. And I was like, you know, was able to write her back at least an email and say, oh my gosh, I am so, so sorry. And, you know, gave her a couple nuggets of grief advice that, you know, did you know I was a grief support trained counselor? And here's a couple things, you know, it's your process. It's your journey. You need to take the time that you need to grieve for that. And, you know, obviously like a quick, I don't, I don't think he was very, I think he was like in his seventies. So not super old, but obviously, you know, when somebody who's older gets COVID, it, it could have morbidity, you know, higher morbidity rates, uh, mortality rates. So I, I feel like, you know, from that experience, and that was like maybe mid-April or end of April, it taught me I don't know what other people are going through. So those questions are so important to ask at the front end. Um, and then you mentioned the idea of hope. Um, And I did kind of want to, you know, talk a little bit about that in this last section of the podcast, because I really think that, you know, we have a new administration, whether you voted for that administration or not, it is going to bring change into our country. Um, It was it felt a little ironic to me. I don't want to get into a political discussion, but I will just mention it felt a little ironic to me that. The way things had played out, right? Because in 2016, Joe Biden being the vice president of the United States and Obama not being, President Obama not being allowed to run again, the natural progression of things would be that Joe Biden would run. But unfortunately, as we know, his son had died not very long before he had to make that decision. And he just, I mean, you know, speaking of grief again, didn't feel, you know, we, I can understand that having gone through grief myself. um, it didn't feel that he had, it takes a lot of energy to run a presidential campaign. I know I've worked on a lot of local campaigns and even the local campaigns taken an unbelievable amount of energy from everybody who's working on the campaign, particularly the candidate. And to crisscross the country and to, you know, give a message of hope and he just wasn't up to it. And so he stepped back and Hillary Clinton stepped forward. And we know the outcome of the 2016 election. And when um, Joe Biden got the nomination, the Democratic nomination, there were a lot of people within the Democratic Party who were like, he's too old, he's the stodgy Guy on the Hill, he's been in the Senate 30 years or whatever, however long it's been. It's been a long time. I think more than he was elected when he was 30. I didn't even know that until recently. So it's been decades, you know, he's part of the stodgy old machine and whatever, but i felt that he was the exact right person at the exact right time and that kamal harris exact right person at the exact right time we need joe biden has always been we've always seen pictures of him even when he wasn't my senator you know you would see pictures of him embracing people and listening to their stories and going off script to express empathy and I think that's exactly what we need right now. And to have a woman who's of color and not of one color, but of two colors is awesome. And not only that, you and I will appreciate this. Her husband is a Jew from Brooklyn. So, so, I mean, we really have like a diversified and he's choosing people on his uh, cabinet, the the first time many for many people that they will be in that central, that, that inner circle in the White House, be represented there. I think this is exactly what we need right now. And I think like him or hate him, he's bringing a sense of hope, a sense of empathy, a sense of compassion into the leadership of the United States. And we need that desperately at this time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I I think the, the the man, the person, and the moment have really come together here. And certainly of the uh, people who were running for the Democratic nomination, many of whom I admire, uh, to me, uh, we picked the right one, not just because I think he was maybe the one who was capable of beating Donald Trump, which was my personal preference, but I think also just in terms of his personality, his life experience, um, you... You won't. You cannot find somebody who has lost as much as he has over the course of you know his life. As you mentioned, he was elected to the of as a thirty, and I think most people know he lost his wife and young daughter in a car accident not long after his election, before he was even sworn into his first term. And then his son dying uh, four or five years ago of cancer. I mean, you know, he's been through it. And talk about somebody who just embodies hope. You know, it. it, it he persevered. He he grieved the way he needed to. And boy, did he show resilience. I'm tying all the words in here. I mean, he really, <laughs> he really you know, embodies all of that. And I think, and I hope that uh, that's exactly what, what the country needs and, uh, and that he'll be able to deliver uh, in a way that will just, just calm things down for a while and maybe bring people a little closer together. At least things will be moving, in my opinion, in the right direction instead of in the wrong direction.
2: So the one thing that I learned about him during the DNC, the Democratic National uh, Convention, and I watch both conventions, I like to be informed on both sides, was the fact that when his grandchildren were talking about him, he calls each one of his grandchildren every day on the campaign trail, off the campaign trail, just to check in. You know, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, just just a two minute check-in. And that really impressed me because, you know, people don't even do that with their own children, their grandchildren. So I was really, really impressed with that. And I think it shows his character as being real and true. He's not faking it. This is really the way he is. He really cares that much, not only about his own family, but about your family as well you know, I think that extends. Um, let's switch topics just a second and talk a little bit about the vaccine. Cause I think the vaccine also ties in some of the words that we talked about before. I worry about the two vaccines, you know, people not getting the second. I think the vaccine is hopeful. I put it in the hope category <laughs> because I'd like to think that it's hopeful and brings us to closure, at least on this particular chapter. And also showed a lot of the elements that we talked about. How resilient were these? I was watching something the other night that talked about how the vaccine got to market. I think it was on ABC. And it was was a news special. And they were talking about how they were ready to deal with this, just like we were already in our homes with the technology. They were ready to roll this kind of thing out. They kind of knew from Ebola that something like this could happen. And they were kind of gearing up not for this specific vaccine, but for a specific vaccine uh, to have to be able to produce it um, in large quantities. And so all of that to me is like so hopeful and so um, resilient. And, and then the only thing I worry about a little bit is the intolerance piece. Because if only 50% of the people, let's say 50% of the people are willing to wear masks, Is that the same 50% that are going to get the vaccine and then other people are not going to get it? And I worry about that. You know, I'm hopeful that it'll be like the flu vaccine or something that everyone realizes they need to get it and they will get it. Um, It worries me also just from a health communications perspective, because I think, you know, a lot of my clients are in healthcare, um, that if people have to get two shots, how many people are just gonna get one and say, I'm not going back or I'm busy with work or, you know, so I'm a little worried about those two factors.
1: Well, especially on the, on the two-shot vaccine, if people get sick from the first one, which can happen, of course, when you uh, inject live virus, it, the whole idea is to boost your immune system and it may be that some people show some symptoms. I don't know if we ever talked, we spoke about this, but earlier this year, uh, I got, I, I'm at the age now where I, my doctor recommended I get the shingles vaccination. So I went, that's also a two shot course. And I went and got the first one. And that evening I w- got sicker than I really can never remember being in my life. Of course, for a little while, I was worried that it may just coincidentally have been COVID that I was getting, you know, it wasn't the shot itself. Fortunately, although it was an awful night by the, time morning broke I felt much better and I'm I'm going to go get the second shot but I'm not looking forward to it and and I'm putting it off uh until uh you know maybe even until the spring which you can you have just have to get it I think within six months of the first shot but yeah particularly if if this one makes people sick are they going to go back for the second one a couple of things there from a communication standpoint my firm also does a lot of work with uh, in the healthcare field particularly for uh hospitals and uh uh, senior living centers and assisted living facilities and that kind of thing. And I think that the uh, the former presidents, when they announced that they were going to publicly have you know get the vaccine, I thought was a terrific way to communicate the importance of it and to demonstrate to people um, that it needs to be done, that it's safe. And we have uh, reached out to some of our clients to urge their leaders to do the same thing. So you know, the CEO or chairman of the board of the hospital should publicly, you know, go on a local television station and take the shot. So hopefully that will help. I think also, and this is of course a policy decision, but, and I have to credit my mother with giving me this this idea. You can't force people to take the vaccine. I suppose it's within their rights to refuse it, but it should be a lot like driving a car if you don't get the vaccine then you don't get the little card that says you've had it which allows you to go into the grocery store or to go to a restaurant or to do all of the things that we all want to go back and do so yeah you can choose not to have it but you that means you're going to forfeit a lot of the benefits that come along with having the shot now, i i don't know if you could make that work from a policy point of view but to me that's a pretty simple way of communicating not only how important it is but to Coerce, I guess, incentivize, whatever word you want to use, uh, people to uh, to get the shot, just so that they can get back to to normal. And I've then-
2: heard so many metaphors where people said, "Oh, it's like seatbelts. You know, you can't drive without." I think it's like drinking and driving, right? Because it's much more choice oriented. Like you can drink and drive. 10 times before you crash into a brick wall or, you know, or you get stopped for some other reason or you're swerving or whatever, and you get stopped, you know, you could have had some drinks and driven under the influence where nobody stopped you, but I don't drink and drive (laughs) because I don't want to create a situation that would be harmful to other people or to me. Um, and so I don't do it, but, um, I think your mom, your mom's idea of the card is probably correct, because that's kind of, I think, what they're trying to do with the masks. You know, I know in a lot of the grocery stores, I don't think there's one that I've been in, they have somebody at the door. Right. And, and if you're you, not wearing a mask, you can't get in.
1: And we've all seen the the footage of people who, you know, who march in their maskless to defend their right to do so. And I think you're right. It is analogous to drinking and smoking, both of which you are free to do as much of, as you wish in the comfort of your own home, but you are not allowed to smoke in public because that's dangerous to other people. And you're not allowed to drink and drive because you're putting other people in danger. So yeah, to me, that's, those are both good analogies in terms of uh, how to explain, how to communicate why a vaccine is important.
2: So getting back to the hope, the word hope, which I did want to kind of end on because I think it's a positive word. Um, I do see hope um, in 2021 and moving forward. I think that um, a lot of our consumer-based, materialistic-based society has pulled back from that. I don't think this even is just the U.S. I think worldwide, we've kind of pulled back from really knowing what we need and what we want. You know, like I want a closet full of clothes. I don't need a closet full of clothes. So, you know, um, and and many other things. So I think it's, people are reprioritizing. And in my opinion, it's hopeful that they're reprioritizing putting non-material things and, and hopeful things at the forefront, family, health, um, exercise, you know, just living a healthy lifestyle, um, eating well, you know, all of that. And it feels to me like we're moving into, or we've taken a step, not that we've all moved into this category, but we've moved away from, uh, conspicuous consumption and into value-based living. And that value-based living you know, and it ties back into what we were talking about before—the self-care, the being more introspective, the the having time to think and reflect—and you know, you mentioned reading and watch binge-watching movies by yourself or with your family. It really gives you a different perspective on what's really going to make you happy in the long term and a life worth living.
1: Well, I think that sums it up very well. Uh, thank you. For coming back and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about some of the things we didn't get to the last time around. Uh, By the time uh, folks hear this it'll be 2021 so we'll be into the new year and I'll I'll say happy holidays and 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 wish you a happy new year. uh, Uh,
2: The same to you happy holidays and happy new year and I hope that 2021 is uh, far superior to 2020.
1: Thank you for everyone.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For everyone exactly.
1: You may have noticed that we have new podcast art for the new year, and I want to thank my daughter, Rachel Greenberger, for designing it. Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo of jimiumgroup.com for our original music. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Send questions to wtswtgt at gmail.com, and follow us at hashtag wtswtgt. See you next week, and until then, always be positive